See, that's the only thing you said that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) No. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Raj. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we are going to start a series of episodes. We're not sure what we're going to call it. Maybe by the next episode, we'll have a a clever, witty name for it. But for now, we're going to be talking about our relationship, our relationships with ourselves, our relationships with what we're going to call our given community. So that would include family. That would include our society that we are born into. And then we're going to close out by talking about our chosen community, the friends, the relationships that we choose and we engage in on our own volition. And for our segment, we are going to be doing Desert Island. Uh, It's one of my favorites, and it should be very revealing about all of us, hopefully. Otherwise, it won't be fun, right? Right. Let's get into it. So um, let's let's talk about self, right? So we're talking about our relationship with ourself, how we deal with ourself, how we view ourself. And, And it's a broad topic, but I think that the nice thing about it is that there's five selves in this virtual room and we can all bring our self to the table and hopefully uh, strike a chord with our listeners who would relate to either one of us or all of us or or whatever. I think for me to kind of get the, the, the ball rolling, uh, a lot of times when self came up in my old evangelical context, it was always a negative thing. And we've talked about this several times before. It was always in the sense of, you know, you are nothing without God total depravity, all that bullcrap that we all heard growing up uh, in our evangelical circles. And then as a progressive, I find that it it centers more around self-care, right? You are special. You are wonderful. Do these things to take care of yourselves uh, psychologically, emotionally, you know, go do your yoga on the beach kind of deal. And I think that those two things – it, they're they're jarring. And one thing that I've learned, and you could probably notice, at least for me, in, in the way that I've talked over the last year or more on this show, is that part of self-care or part of relationship with self for me has been acknowledging and wrestling. And I think this is especially appropriate in our, t- our culture today, acknowledging and wrestling with where and who I am in the society that I'm in. And obviously, we'll get into this bigger as we go through in terms of like our society and family and all that dynamic. But, you know, as a straight white male, I need to, if I want to be a whole self, acknowledge all the things that come with that. Because I think the whole self-care thing can at times become more of a, more of an isolation thing. Like, you take yourself out from everything and it more it puts you more in a bubble. Not to say that self-care is important, and I think we're going to talk about that because it's all been important for all of us to move away from those things. But I think it's a balance of those things, being realistic about who we are internally and then how we fit externally in the world around us. I think self-care is a mechanism to make people feel guilty for failing. Like, <laughs> this is the critical millennial in me coming out, but we're told all the time, like self-care, self-care in an environment where people are not being paid enough to take care of themselves and they have very unique stressors and telling them self-care is the most critical thing is subtly a way to shift blame. I think it is important. And I'm not saying that we should just lean into the idea that 
we're pow- we're powerless to control our lives. But I still think that like society wide, and especially as a pastor, right? You know, like, <laughs> hey, self care. Well, it's not just about self care. Like, what kind of relationship are you in work wise with your church you're working for? It's a little dark turn, but I think it's more than just isolation. I think you're really onto something, Alan, because I think that it's a propensity within our culture to think of ourselves as actually separate from all these systems that we're connected to instead of a part of. And so self-care reinforces that idea that we're like separate and that we actually can, like you said, control our whether how resilient we are how many stressors we can handle and so on without considering the way that our relationship to all the systems that we're a part of impacts who we are. So it's like you can't do self-care without doing system care. And I think that's what Jeff was getting at, you know, saying self-care being an isolation thing. But not as eloquently put as that just now, Bonnie. I really enjoy that. I like that set apart as opposed to being apart. I like that. So, So those are like progressive problems, right? You were just talking about your former context and your current one. That seems like a more of like a progressive community thing. I don't know. I think maybe like the way that that Bonnie worded it, it's very similar to you're in the world, but not of the world. Like, I think that that dynamic of where your placement is or that struggle is still the same on both ends of it. I think the manifestation of it is different, right? For like an older context, the manifestation is to try to isolate yourself and submit to some sort of whatever, which still takes away a certain amount of agency. And I think that, you know, self-care does the same thing too, especially if you're thinking in terms of, you know, setting yourself apart from the systems that you are uh, a part of it, it, you know, it isolates you, it prevents you from fully engaging in a, in a way that I think is similar to, again, the, this is like, this is if we're looking at it at the binary, right? If you're all self-care, I'm not saying self-care is a, as a, I don't think any of us are saying self-care is a bad thing. We should be taking care of ourselves. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge that our place in the world determines how much more we can indulge in that self-care, whether it's through therapy or a vacation or a day off from work, which a lot of people, you can't just take a day off from work and do that. And I don't know, what you, what do you think? Like that that kind of that dichotomy, it's different on the surface, but maybe it's the same in the, if you go in any extreme, it's the same underneath it. I think that you have to know yourself before you can actually tap into self-care in a real and legitimate way. Well um, said. I know, I know for a long time, um, people would say to me, Casey, what do you do to take care of yourself? How do you, you know, what are the things that, that give you life? And I didn't know, right? I would just say the things that, oh, I went for a walk today, you know, um, are the things that, that supposedly are supposed to give you self-care. Prayer and reading the Bible. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, and on, on, on both sides, right? So, um, in order to recoup as an evangelical, you, you take, how, how's your quiet time going? Right. Barf. Just saying that makes me want to puke. <laughs> um, but you know, are you, are you getting that time every day with the Lord? Blah, blah, blah. And on the other side, the question is, well, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Are you working out? Are you eating healthy? Are you getting enough sleep? And I think that in a lot of ways, the, the self is a double edged sword. You are a self and you are not a self. The stories you tell yourself about who you are may not actually be the things that are true about you. And so it really is a task to dig deeper than the ego message of who you say you are to find the things that actually bring you life. For example, I would have never thought that I was someone who enjoyed enjoyed the 
the outside, the outdoors as much as I do now. Um, but when you lose 200 pounds and are able to do those things, myself said I was never one of those people. And now I can't wait for this to go kayaking. I found myself the other day out pulling weeds by myself and just basking in that. But that took work. And so I think that that's one of the things that we as people have to begin to unravel is we are a self and we are not a self. And where do we find delight in both of those things? You you said self-knowledge is important, is key before taking care of yourself. You have to know how to and who you are. I kind of want to know what the Seventh-day Adventists were like, but in my context, there was not a high price on knowing yourself at all. Like you were supposed to conform. You weren't supposed to like dig into your intrinsic motivations and identity. Well, because you were, because then you were being, uh, you were being sinful. selfish. Yeah, selfish right. and sinful. It was actually yeah. evil to get to know yourself to Correct. some extent. I mean, that was that was preached from from the pulpit in my background. Yeah, I think self knowledge is such a pervasive problem. I don't think it matters where you come from. For sure, it's it's this great mystery. I mean, this grand mystery. Again, you know. Kind of Casey was talking about being asked about, well, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, yesterday in, in my therapy session, <laughs> my therapist asked me, she was like, so what do you, how do you practice self care? I was like, I don't even know what that is. Like, I, I have no idea what that actually is. And I think what I was really meaning, and, you know, obviously we're going to explore this more is like the notion of self is such a grand mystery. That's right. That's right. Um, and it, it's a, it's a deep thing. And, you know, Alan, you were talking about Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah, you know, it's fundamentalist, sectarian. It's not about you. It's about all this other stuff. The first time I ever heard the the idea that from a Christian perspective that the self was important was attending kind of in in a return to Christianity. Um, was it Glide United Methodist Church um, in San Francisco? And Reverend Fitch was like, you know, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, if you don't love yourself first, you're no good to anybody else. And then he went on to talk about what does self-love look like? And and how do you – and I was just like, what? That's, that's actually a thing. And, you know, Glide is a, is a very – they serve the homeless in, in very tangible ways. Um, they serve the queer community in very tangible ways. Um, so they've been on – Loving the pe- loving people on the margins is their thing, and to actually come to realize I myself, as an entity, have been a thing on the margins too. I don't even know what that is. So it was it was pretty mind blowing, and uh, to actually still be in this work of well, what is self? Uh, Ten, twelve years later, is it's remarkable. Yeah, I you know when I think about. The um, old ways of thinking about self in the in the um, fundamentalist Seventh Day Adventist tradition that I grew up in, I think Jeff, what you said about like maybe that's something that hasn't been really constructed, deconstructed in the evolution from fundamentalism to progressive Christianity is this notion of self that it's like two sides of the same coin. This like narcissistic egoist behavior and also this giving up all the glory to God all the time, like the self-effacement. 
that that's right Bobby. that that yep. there's some sort of like arrogance that can come in in this like give up you know it's not me it's god it's not me it's god and to say that again and again and again is kind of a narcissism and i don't know what any of you think about that but that's been my experience as i as 100% I agree <laughs> hum- humble bragging is like a a rite of passage <laughs> in I will, those churches I, I will say that pride pride and self-hatred are not mutually exclusive like you can you can have this like narcissistic pride and also hate yourself at the same time. I think it was a uh, Groucho Marx who um made the joke way back in the day uh, that he would never deign or lower himself to join a club that would accept him. You know? <laughs> like that's kind of like a tug of cheek joke, but it's true. I mean, Raj mentioned um this being a grand mystery. It is for everyone, for every religion, for every human being. Knowing yourself is a type of intelligence that people, um, you know, they've identified in the 80s. I keep bringing this up in all these episodes, but I think it's just fascinating. You know, the different areas of intelligence. There's body intelligence. Some people are very kinesthetically, like, they're just so connected to their body. There is an intelligence there. Uh, there's naturalist intelligence, like connection to, to the world, musical, and then uh, interpersonal and intrapersonal. There are people who like can, y- you you have friends who just know what you're thinking all the time, right? And they do, they can just see you. They know what you're feeling. They know what you need, but they may not know themselves at all. That in- intrapersonal intelligence, knowing yourself is this mysterious, wonderful exploration. And the, the sick irony is the gl- person at Glide was right. If you don't love yourself, if you have that mixture of uh, self-hatred and perhaps that that p- narcissistic pride, um, you won't you won't let other people love you. Like you know, if someone starts to love you back, you're going to be like, "Well, that person's not that great because <laughs> they love me." You know, <laughs> like how they your view of other people. If you if your view of yourself is that you are constantly this evil creature who is not worthy or deserving of love. When other people start to love you, you are going to devalue them. That's what that gospel that Jesus speaks, you know, love others as you love yourself speaks to is undoing that cycle. And, And I think we're seeing that all over the world is because we actually have so much self hatred. We have these repeated mass shootings and so on. So we are quote unquote loving each other as we love ourselves which is pretty jacked up right now and maybe always always has been i guess i'm not convinced that at the heart of it is self-hatred like i think that for some people it is self-hatred but i don't know maybe i'm I'm just just speaking for personal experience (laughs) (laughs) i'm not saying everyone is like that right well and and but i do think it's a motivation for people i do think that our our view of the self does um, which is why it's hard to to judge actions, right? Because below the surface is that I think we can judge actions as it doesn't matter what your motivation is in terms of the consequences of those actions. They're still going to hurt people or help people. So from an outside perspective, who gives a crap about your motivations? But on an internal perspective, it certainly matters because it's a part and a definition of who you are as a self. And it it can affect the way that things come out later. And I think that, you know, Alan, you were talking about how self-hate and uh, a, a certain arrogance or pride aren't exclusion. Like they don't have to be exclusive from one another. And I agree. But I also think that at times 
that they are very much. I think sometimes that kind of arrogance is an excuse for hatred of others. Yeah, and I, I think you're you're right, Jeff. I think crediting hatred uh, on the surface as being the source is a mistake because hatred is a result of, um, I think, ultimately untended grief. And when we have untended, unresolved grief, it manifests in really troubling ways. And sometimes we damage ourselves, and sometimes, depending on our personalities, we end up damaging other people. So that's one of the that's one of the ideas in terms of the Enneagram. Like the way you became your number was out of trauma from from childhood. It, like you are your number because you had to survive something pretty difficult. It was a, the survival skills that you learned as a child that you have just manifested over and over and over again. It's a lens in which you see the world. It's the lens in which or it is the way in which you navigate the world because it is what has kept you the most safe. I love that Enneagram doesn't shame you for that. Like, cause it's impossible to not have survival skills. We all learn that, right? That's what it means to be a human. We've mentioned before wired for survival, uh, worthy of love. But Casey, when I hear you talk about the Enneagram, it's not that this is a negative thing, but it's something that you can understand and understand how it might trip you up or how you can live out of it in a, in a life giving way. Right. So, right. And and I think that that's sort of what I was getting at earlier. It's like some of the ways in which have always seemed to work for me in terms of how I find life or the way in which self-care works for me aren't always actually the ways that are best for me. Because I have uh, be- I have told myself a story about who I am and what I love um, and to find out that those things were actually not as life-giving as I had expected them to be. Um, and that's where I think self-discovery is so important and why why I would challenge any of you and any listener to continue to try new things, to to risk and to experiment. We credit children for wondering, right, For a lot, and encourage that, like try new sports, try different whatever, dance classes. Um, we encourage children to wonder and to explore and somehow along the way, we we lose that in ourselves. I believe that does us more harm than good, I guess. And it's kind of passe to talk about, you know, your inner child. But I really do think that we carry those parts of ourselves that uh, that grief that we didn't that is primordial, that is from childhood we've carried with us. But we're still in there. Like we're an amalgamation of all of the identities we've been from the time that we've been born. And I remember a couple of years ago walking by a river and just thinking about my life and about me as a little kid. And I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, bless his memory. He uh, was talking about he- talking to your inner child or your younger self. And I like envisioned myself in fifth or sixth grade. I'm this overweight little kid who's getting made fun of by all these people at school who like hates himself, who's really excited and always asking questions in class and pissing everyone off like teachers and everyone else just because I have all this energy. And I was like, that kid was cool. That kid was really cool. I would love to hang out with the younger version of myself. And I just imagine like taking my own hand and like walking with me and, uh, and giving myself the love that I may or may not have received from teachers or, or friends or from the people around me. And I think any, any of us can do that. It sounds cheesy, but really going back to those places in your life where you didn't receive love does resolve some of that hatred. Cause I think Raj is right. It is 
hatred is a is a or anger and hatred is like this thin veneer over grief over things that that we didn't get one thing for listeners who are listening though like i've heard people talk about when they had emotions their parents would say demons were affecting them like there's trauma there's religious trauma that's real in in regard to our relationship with ourselves so if you grew up and your parent was being, you know, your parent used your religious situation to like not listen to you, not give you love, you you can't go back and relive the past. You can't go to your parents and get the love that you desire or especially from a romantic partner, right? That's like this is something I that I've been really like digging through personally. It's why I'm um getting a little excited, but it's unfair to to look at your romantic partner and expect them to give you the love of a, of a parent because they're not your parent and you're not 12 years old. You're not six years old. You're not four years old anymore. Nobody can give you that, that kind of love, but you can, you can give that to yourself. You can do some of the work of healing some of that grief. I think what I, what I, from listening to everyone um, share like self-hatred, Enneagram, um, this idea of how do we heal ourselves from the wounds and trauma of our childhood. I think that's why I really like where the Enneagram and system, family systems theory sort of come together. Enneagram, we're all given a number, and we can sort of think of that as like we have an essence. And yet I'm not sure that self is ever essential. That, um, you know, as like Casey, as you were describing, like these things that you thought cared for yourself and now you're in a, you're in a different place and now there's whole new things that care for yourself. So are we self or are we part of a system? What's that balance between individuality and togetherness? And how does self, how is self involved in its own process? Which means that if we talk about things like transformation, which is, you know, a theological term, it's a biological term, it's, it's a term that's used all over the place. Then, then what does transformation mean? Does it mean actually becoming something new and different? And if so, can we embrace that? Or do we need to continually hold on to the self in an essential sense? Or is it evolutionary? I love the idea of letting go of the self. Um, because it's when you let go of, of the self that you begin to find how connected to everything you actually are. The more exploring that you do of that, uh, aside from that story that you tell yourself, the wondering that happens and the mystery that comes in, in the face of nothingness allows you to also find that in another. And I think that that's something that as in the last year that I've been navigating is when I am walking, when I'm walking with Cole, my dog, and taking a moment to just be in that space and be grounded in the earth and to not tell myself any story about what's happening, but to just be things pop up in the in in the wake of of the silence that I'm trying to create and it allows for me to say I didn't know this about myself or I didn't I didn't recognize that tree before you know um because we're always individually telling ourselves stories about every moment of the day everything that's happening around us we're we are illustrating in our brains everything and what happens when you can set all of that aside and just be fully present? And I think that when you come back into that, 
what it does is it creates space for you to do that for another. You know, we talk about this all the time, be present, be present. Mm-hmm. But what does that really mean? It means shutting off the, the, the messages that you're telling yourself about what's actually happening in front of you and just be in the space. Right. And I think that along with that is that we don't know how to be in the space of us, like our own who we are. Exactly. And I wonder if part of the problem is, is that we, we think so much in terms of destination, right? So even when, when Bonnie says like, we are becoming the, the, I think the impression that most people have in the back of their mind is that there's a destination. So we're on our way to something instead of becoming being reality, That's right? right? That's like right. yes, moving ourselves forward and knowing that we're always going to change. Like I remember growing up, my grandma used to say like, whenever someone got mad, they'd be like, oh, that's that Irish temper. You know, like they'd always assume like these are, these are things about yourself that you were born with that will never be gone. And I think that that's the danger of the Enneagram. Although I, I've been, Casey, you'd be proud. I've been immersing myself in, in the, the Enneagram. I've read three books in the last two and a half weeks on the Enneagram to kind of, to, to engage in that anyway. Uh, but like the, the, the danger of that is, well, I'm a, I'm a two. And then you, you stay there. Like, so you've, you've created and, and rested in a new reality of who yourself is. And I think that that's, that's dangerous because I think in any endeavor, the more you explore, the more you expand, the more you understand. We did it with our relationship with God, right? All of us did. We moved from evangelical fundamentalist to something else because we allowed ourselves to explore. And we don't allow ourselves to explore ourselves in, in all ways, right? Like in internally and, you know, Alan's talking about body intelligence, right? Like being able to explore who we are, not just, you know, not just sexually, but even like, you know, new activities, like pushing But that our, is important also. It is. It is It is also important, very much important. Um, so I think that all of those things, like Alan was saying, that there's so many layers in which we can expand our intelligence. And I think that, I think that really, what are we doing when we expand our intelligence? We're expanding more ways in which we can view ourselves in the world around us, whether that's through our body or through our mind or through any of that kind of stuff. And I think that we just becoming is important. Um, so I, I think and that you're we not, just, and you're not arriving anywhere. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, that, that uh, I love. Um, and that's what I was saying earlier about curiosity, finding that curious self again, returning to the wonder of, of who you are allows you to, um, to turn that outward and to begin to wonder and be curious about those around you. Uh, every moment is an arrival and also a launching point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that all of this is fantastic and I don't want to derail the conversation, but I'm just thinking about where I've been and what I've come from listening to this episode. People would be like, they can't, they can't even start to think along that, that path because we've been given messages like, the heart is deceptively wicked. Who could know it? So if you're just getting to know yourself more, you're like, you're just increasing your ability to do evil. You know, Luther says there's nothing good in you, but Christ. And that makes you good enough. That's because um, he was an I, ass. And that's how he. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what I'm trying to say is that uh, there's things that need to be addressed. I think in this episode, before we just move in a direction that I think all this is very helpful, but I'm just thinking there are still people who are deconstructing their ideas of self in, in like the conservative fundamentalistic context. And I think it's kind of important to maybe answer some of those things. Like, like if you right now asked people, are humans basically good or bad? 
people who grew up evangelical are given this thing that no humans are basically evil. Like that's at least from my neo-Calvinistic background. And so all of this talk sounds like whimsy, you know, it sounds like, uh, uh, irrelevant and inappropriate and all of those things. And the sad thing is like, this is where all the good work happens. And so there has to be like a reframing in my mind to give yourself permission to let go some of some of the unhelpful things. Like you're born sinful and deserving of hell. The moment you're, <laughs> you're born as a baby because you are inherently evil and God hates you and thank God that God, uh, is merciful enough to kill Jesus so that you don't go to hell. Like those kind of concepts teach us that getting to know yourself is, is wrong. And I think you have to replace some of that, those messages or reclaim some of those messages. And you can using Christianity if you want to, I mean, we're all made in the image of God, right? Like that's, that's an element of Christian thought for a long time, the Imago Dei. And if you actually Jewish, okay. Jewish and Christian, I'm thinking of like the, the medieval Latin, Christian scholars who talked about that all the time, but you're right. It goes much further past Christianity. But the idea that uh, getting to know yourself well is getting to know God. Like there's like your, the image that you are made in is, is a holy and good thing. You know, not that there's a place that you're necessarily going to be arriving at. I like that. I think Casey said that, but just knowing who you are is if we don't know ourselves and we're not fully able to be who we are, then we're missing out on that bigger picture. There, So there is a book called Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place by Daniela Schroyer. And I remember a few years ago being at a progressive youth ministry conference and hearing her talk about Jewish understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and talking about original blessing versus original sin. Her comment was, you know, if there's any problem we have at the beginning, not that she believed in a seven-day creation, but of this story, if there's any real problem, the problem is, is that we have a blessing problem. We don't realize um, how loved we actually are. And walks through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as a way of saying, you know, this is, this is about raising children. You know, God gives them responsibility, just like we give children responsibility. God allows them to name their name the animals of the earth, just like we encourage children to name pets. And then how many, I mean, I remember as a little person, you know, for the first time recognizing my nakedness. I mean, we all have stories of like our nieces or nephews or children. You open the door and they're like, I'm naked. And it's sort of like, who told you that? You know, what's going on? And then God sends them, and then they fall in love, whatever. All of these first human experiences, and then God says, it's time for you to move out of the nest, right? It's time for you to move on. And as this Daniela lady is telling the story, I'm like sobbing in the back, because I had never heard the story told this way. And I think that, uh, Alan, you know, I think you're right in saying we have to address some of those earliest, um, earliest stories that were told about who we are as people from people from a pulpit. During Lent, I've been doing this thing with my congregation where we are telling stories. And last week, we started with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I laid out the case just like I was talking to you guys about. But the lady who shared in my church talked about her mom always telling her, you know, you're you're a cold-hearted person. You have no emotions. You don't feel. And it was only until she was in her 30s that she was able to say, that's a story told about me. It is not true of who I am. 
And I think it's the same as we come to, like you're saying, Alan, um, we have to confront these stories again to say, um, these are stories that have, uh, uh, these messages that have been shared with us are not true. They're not true of who we are as, as creatures. They are not true of who we are in relationship to the divine. The, the story of Babel did that for me too. You're talking about rereading Genesis, like Babel being a punishment or is it, is Babel being like, no, move out of the nest, like you said, and go explore your different cultures instead of creating this monolithic culture where everybody is the same. God is actually making humanity fulfill the earlier commandment to go throughout the whole earth and to be fruitful and multiply and to change and have different languages and have this diversity where, you know, those are all these different human expressions come from that. To me, that's more of a blessing than it is a curse. So I think rereading that stuff is great. Yeah, the the notion of changing one's narrative is very powerful, um, and it's hard work. Uh, one Amen. of the one yeah. of the spaces where that's actually been studied with uh, literal, I mean, legitimate data uh, to back it up is is around first generation college attendance. And a friend of mine runs a program particularly for first college generation attenders and uh, minorities. Um, and a big part of her work in supporting these students is how do you rewrite your narrative? And the difference, statistical difference between college retention, like young people actually finishing, staying and finishing college that have had programs and interventions like that to support them versus first generation and minority students who don't have those programs is staggering. The The difference is staggering. So being able to claim your story as your own, delete chapters or relegate chapters that other people have thrust upon you into, you know, some other section of the library, your personal library is, is really powerful uh, but it it it's hard work, and you know, again, tying into yes, it's about self, but you got to do that work in community. You need people to help support you, and in some cases, trusted, uh, capable mentors to help guide the process for you as you're able to develop your own your own footing. I mean, it, that's one setting where we can say it works. I think that's good that you brought that up. And if, if it's okay with everyone, I'd like to kind of shift into maybe another aspect that we mentioned in the beginning is that talking about that society, that is that, that story that is being thrust upon you is that part of that reality of self is recognizing what, what heritage you come from? Like what story are you a part of just by birth? And I know we'll get into that. We'll get into like the systems of that when we talk about our given community. But I think that we do, while we're talking about self address, like how do we as an individual reconcile ourselves to that? Do we, do we blind ourselves to our heritage and deny it and just live as though we're not affected by it, even though we are on a daily basis, which I think is probably more of a tendency. You know, it took me, 35 years to even begin to deconstruct my my privilege, my place, my story in society as an individual. And it's been it's been hard work and I think that that's another thing to look at as we kind of, you know, finish the the conversation on self. Much like um the ego messages that have sustained us for ill <laughs> for good and for ill, I think it, it's the same idea, Jeff. I mean, this is what we see perpetuating 
in our political system now, right? The protection of whiteness, the protection of masculinity, the protection of straightness, um, all of the ego messages, societal ego messages around safety and protection. They're toxic and they're unhelpful. But making those changes are is is really hard. And so what ends up happening often is that it gets sh- shifted into new language, but it's exactly in the same substance. Just new language shrouds it or covers it over. I, I think it's really important and helpful to never think of oneself as coming into the world in, as a blank slate that we bring into the world all of our inheritances and emotionally, genetically, um, socially, all of these things come into the world with us and then they're given to us to work with, but but work with in relationship to all the other connections that we have because to be human is to be in relationship. There's no getting around that. So as much as we want to talk about self, you know, self is um, differentiated only as much as we kind of as the boundaries that we begin to set as we learn more about how to healthfully to, to be healthy and to take care of ourselves, but it's always in relationship. So I wonder like if we change the way we think of selves as kind of entities separate from, and all of these different entities are connected, but instead focus on what is the space between what is the space between and how can we use language to describe that? That's dangerous. Tell me how that's dangerous. That's dangerous to concepts like meritocracy. There are people who make tons of money fighting that idea. Oh, yeah. Like either the idea that you're born a blank slate and you've worked hard for everything you have like that, that props up the kind of capitalistic laissez-faire meritocracy thing that you have to own everything that earn everything that you get and you have earned everything that you have. And if we focus as people on that space between us, it unravels a little bit of that narrative. And so there are the whole narrative. Are, right. There are people who are invested in not exploring that. Well, it makes you wonder, is there such a thing as private ownership? Right. Right. And everything that comes unraveled when you start wondering <laughs> that. Oh, at least in the United States, it does. <laughs> Just from this conversation alone, I've already written down like five episode ideas. <laughs> I feel like we've got a lot going on. Raj, you've been awfully quiet today. I'd love to hear more from you. Yeah, I guess there's there's so much um there's so much gray you know in in this subject matter and we we desperately don't want there to be you know we want to have some sense of self. So I'm I'm listening, I'm thinking and reflecting in this I thought I had more to offer before we started re- recording. Um and yeah, I I wonder. I mean, but you know, kind of stepping back into the abstract and in, into the conceptual realm. But the idea of meritocracy and its relationship to Dr. King's idea of the content of one's character. Um and I I wonder if maybe working towards a place where uh the the things that we achieve, so to speak, the things that we attain in one's life are, are are to be the basis of whatever we we reap. Um, I, I don't I don't know that that's entirely a bad construct to pursue. Um, the way it is now, it's not a meritocracy. It's weighted. Um, you know, certain people have 
ridiculous obstacles put in front of them and and other people have a glaring head start and you know they have a support van along the way with refreshments and and know. people paying off their college administrators yeah, to all get that, to college all, all, all of all the, the above, way up to a ceo right? of a company so we don't really have a system right now that where real meritocracy exists right it's a fallacy it's like a lie it's a it's a sham. Absolutely, currently. But I, I wonder if if we were to have a society where that were truly fair and just, and then giving us the chance to actually go, you know, anything's possible. Uh, given societally, I mean, I think there's we all have limitations as individuals, but lots of stuff is possible. I I think that people are too cynical for for that though, like. Um, yeah, because we've conditioned to I, be right. I, I think that well, scar- okay, okay, scarcity so you, and everyone is scared of automation. That that companies are going to replace us with robots, right? They're only scared of that because we can only take care of ourselves through earning healthcare, through earning like the ability to live through our jobs, and we're we're scared. We're scared that there's going to be no jobs for people left twenty years from now, and that's only because our society doesn't take care of each other. We could, we could automate everything. We could give people basic income. We could take care of one another, human beings, and then free each other up to like do the good stuff that like we can do as like human beings. Wonder. But, but I think people are too cynical. At least like, the system imagine. we're built on. Yeah. But, but if human beings are basically evil, you don't want to free them up. You don't want to free them up from the hard labor of, of what we do right now because, you know, they're going to do bad stuff. I think we don't believe enough in enough in ourselves as people that if we did take care of each other and our basic needs were met, we could do really cool stuff. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think people are basically evil. I think we're, we're basically good, but there's a Um, lot of people in America that would say that they are, I mean, well, and, and then, you know, maybe we, we send those people to an Island by themselves. (laughs) Um, So in line with the heart of what we're talking about, that would be good. (laughs) That's, that's kind of a joke there. Sort of. I know. Um, But, uh, but I, I think greed is a thing, is, is an evil that, that we've got to overcome. It's, it's a collective and yes, shared evil. That's right. uh, however, that's rooted in fear and, and, and the sense of scarcity and those kinds of things. Yeah, we, we spent $180 billion a year since 9-11 fighting the war on terror, like specifically fighting terror. What if we poured all of that money? Can you imagine $180 billion being poured into infrastructure, education, programs of social uplift? Healthcare. For this many years? For like 18 straight Housing. years? That would be, that'd be incredible. I mean, well, what, I mean what could we do? It, not to be technical, but if, if there's no threat, then we're not going to overextend ourselves. So that, that like half of that, we wouldn't be going into debt. We'd stick with our budget if it was just for good things, right? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't put ourselves in a negative financial space just to take care of people only to take care of people. Like, and I put quotes up, like take care of being, you know, protect. Anyway, that's side note. Sorry. I just, uh, that's, that's a good point. As long as we continue to stay in survival mode, we, we prevent breakthroughs. And and getting into this new thing, and so personally even, too, right? Yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah. So so even if you throw a lot of money at something, unless you're throwing money at the thing, <laughs> that's going to actually help folks to see differently. Um, it's just it'll just keep self perpetuating. Coming back to this conversation with the self, th- that there, I th- I believe that there are two kinds of people. 
There are people that live on one side of this coin that would say, I matter. And, and that's the scarcity that they come from, longing to matter to someone. And so they are going to boast about themselves. They are going to push themselves into conversations. They're going to be aggressive in terms of the way they come into the world to draw people to them, um, which ultimately, what does it do? Pushes people away. And then there are people who live on the other side who say, I don't matter, who are, who are almost fearful in, in seeing themselves as anything other than someone who does not matter. And, and that's, again, a scarcity thing. I think that as we're talking, like the, it's, it's coming to a place of acknowledging that we do matter, but how do I say that without info? You know, but that like, others matter equally, right? Like if we right. are the only one that matters and we don't have right. a, a view that other people matter as much, then that's where we run into the problem. And I think that's kind of the perfect segue into the, as we finish out this series is that we're right. Like relationship is the most important, which is why self is only one third of this ongoing conversation that we're going to have is because, and you know, we'll obviously address it, but it's really, I think maybe the most toxic view of self is that you're isolated, whatever that is. Like that's, that's the absolute worst you can view yourself is that you're above or even below anyone else, like that you have equal value and not to get too complementarian, but you know, you, you have different things that make you unique, but uniqueness is not a hierarchy right? Like it's, you can have an even plane, everyone's unique. And and I think that's where we get into trouble. So maybe that's kind of that landing point for us in this conversation is that you are special, but so is your neighbor and your friend and your weirdo cousin. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to get preachy, but that sounds like Jesus. Human trappings are for humans, right? Not for it's God. It's about Jesus with you, Alan. <laughs> God, God's not like, ooh, look at you. You, you've got, you've got your company. Wow, you're an important person, right? No, human beings all together are loved and worthy of respect, regardless of station. I think that's an old message and a good one. And and your questions are valuable. Like you know, we talked earlier about um, narrative, the way narratives are changed are because we follow questions that we have, maybe that even live in our bodies. And, you know, we feel experience them as anxiety or as um, yearning. Um, and and so for folks who might be wondering, like, it might be feeling really confused because they've gotten this message from their community for so long, but it just doesn't sit right anymore. It doesn't feel right anymore. Then, Then I would say that part of what we're trying to communicate today is, is it's okay to trust yourself, to trust that you're being lured into maybe a different path, a different narrative, and to just follow that and see, see where it might lead and to continue to stay connected to oneself along the way and, and see what new things might be on the horizon. Agency is where it's at. I mean, I, I want to be a part of communities that build up agency because every time they don't, it gets, it gets awful. I think that's kind of the, one of the first sins of, of fundamentalistic culture is that it disrespects human agency. And, and you know what? If, if someone's going to preach at me and tell me to give my life to God, I have to remind myself I can't give what I don't own. Like I need to own myself <laughs> if I can ever give, give something or sacrifice something or whatever. At least you need to know yourself. Yeah. And right. I, I just want to throw out Park, uh, Parker Palmer. If anybody knows Parker Palmer, there, he wrote a book called He's To Know As We Are Known. 
And it's a beautiful book about the connection between head and heart. Because I think knowledge, when it's just head-based, which can be really enticing, especially in this time of uh, transitioning from fundamentalist way of thinking, evangelical way of thinking, to a more progressive way of thinking. But that knowledge has to be integrated with heart and our emotions, too. And so that's a great guide. Parker Palmer's To Know As We Are Known. And and Howard Gardner is, um, Alan mentioned multiple intelligences. Howard Gardner is the uh, um, father of that theory, multiple intelligence theory, and also a great resource for all kinds of stuff. You know, there's there's a, a a notion from the yogic tradition that the farther one travels, the less one knows. And what what the teaching is essentially is the the further you leave yourself, you know, the further you're looking for answers outside of self, the less one actually knows. Um, and that's there's that's just so deep. You know, you spend a lifetime working with that one, but it, it's good. It, it's it's very grounding. All right. Any other thoughts or resources before we close out this conversation in anticipation for our conversation on community? Yeah, um, there's two uh, things on the blog if you'd like to check it out that have to do with this topic. One, addressing worthlessness or concepts of worthlessness, if you'd like to read it and the theological underpinnings of that and how leaving that is extremely life-giving. And the other was kind of a little semi-mystical experience that I had floating in on Valentine's Day um, and learning to love the chaos in myself. Because uh, as we talked about in our cosmological episode, uh, there's this concept in the Hebrew Bible that God loves chaos. And so being able to love kind of my own chaos and disorderedness was a really cool experience. So those are up on the website, anirenacon.com. And as usual, uh, we will put links to all those things that we mentioned in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 139. And there in the show notes, you'll be able to find all the relevant links and complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. But most importantly, you can add your particular voice to this conversation by commenting on there. And uh, yeah, this is this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to this whole thing expanding we haven't it's been a while since we've done a series so this is this is the first series with the the five of us i'm excited i'm getting nostalgic in the midst of it yeah this is the first series we've all done together so kudos to us we are special equally and unique uh bonnie's more special than all of us (laughs) casey you are (laughs) <laughs> oh, let's just get into a fight on who's more awesome. <laughs> let's talk All about right. fusion. <laughs> on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing Desert Island. Should be fun. All right, so Desert Island. This is uh, probably a game that I would assume is familiar for most people. And most people would, you know, I think we've done it once before in the past. We did it. I think it was books. I think what three books would you take with you if you were stranded on a desert island? So this time we're going to theme it a little differently. And we're going to say what three items would you bring on a desert island to maintain your creativity? To, to engage in creativity, right? The important part of self is expression, and the most beautiful form of expression is creative endeavors, whether it's art or pantomime or whatever, <laughs> whatever people are into. So uh, we're going we're gonna to go through that. And Raj, we're going to start with you. What are the three things you would bring to engage creativity on a desert island? And, you know, we can be fantastical with this, right? So like, 
we don't have to like we don't have to be super technical about well that's five items you know like crayons or whatever just just saying to start off yeah the, okay okay well in in my imagination i'm on a tropical deserted island um so there's you know there's stuff uh what i would bring is a a sizable durable fishing net a couple of pieces of flint to be able to start fires are these your creative yeah. items yeah yeah hang hang on hang on we're getting there and and a couple of chickens so uh have some ah, eggs you're going and, the culinary route i'm assuming no no i'm oh. not i'm not going to eat the chickens themselves well maybe if they have plenty of babies eat some eat some uh, but essentially on a tropical island you don't need art supplies oh my goodness like all this stuff is there what you need is some protein and sustenance oh my god so like raj is like i'm not gonna play the game (laughs) no 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 no. i am playing the game because you can create color palette out of out of plants and roots and fruits and um i i I love building forts you know you, you can make twine and and sticks so there's and you're on a deserted island so part of what you want to do is keep the mind sharp, the body engaged. So you don't want a bunch of these prefabricated toys to 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 play with. Wow. You want just, to be able let's to... just start out by devaluing everyone before they can <laughs> even come up with their items. <laughs> no, I'm saying for myself. Okay, okay. I didn't want to bring a bunch of prefabricated toys uh that would that would uh force So me basically into, uh, your answer is laziness. I bring the island. I, no, the island has has. I'm on the island. I'm just saying. I I want to be able to to be uh, nourished uh, in in ways that uh, where because if you're scrounging for food, you're not going to be creative. Okay, so if the island had indigenous chickens and you could make a a net out of your twine that you've made in from indigenous fire. So what you're saying is you just wouldn't bring anything because you don't need anything. Okay, okay. So if if we had if we had that, the one probably the one thing that I would probably uh, bring that's pre prefabbed is 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 a decent acoustic piano. Ooh. See, that's the only thing you said that makes sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> We don't, I, I don't, we don't want any chickens or flint rocks or whatever. Yeah, I, I like eggs. I like fish. Um, there's going to be plenty of fruits. Uh, have a you know a bit of a balanced diet. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the piano, maybe a drum. That'd be fun. But I could make a drum. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, well, I'm willing to go next. Uh, go for it, Casey. <laughs> so so um, I'm going to bring comic books. A ukulele. And after listening to Raj talk about I can make paint from berries and such, which was genius, Raj, I've changed my last one to a telescope because I have really enjoyed connecting with the stars and I think it'd be cool. And there's probably no light pollution on a island. Correct. That's exactly right. Okay. I'm adding hey, telescope we're to mine. Same, we're thinking on the same. Uh, I'm, I'm adding telescope to mine. And you don't need a power for that. That's right. Right, and also it can double as like a survival device. There's some telescope envy going on around here. (laughs) Oh, right! If you flip it backwards, can you start fires with it? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I uh, if anyone wants to know, I don't know how to play the ukulele, but I would have lots of time on an island to figure it out. So there you go. There we go. All right, Bonnie. How about you? Um, I went 
Yeah, I was trying to think, you know, what would I really need? Like what what could not get broken easily? What could I use for a long period of time in case I was stuck there for a really long time? And I, I came up with some very basic things that I think everyone should take with them if they're ever going to be deserted on an island. Crayons, paper, and pens. Those are my three things. Because you can draw pictures of the stars if you want to. You could um, write about your experience. You could write poems. You could keep a journal. And you'd have color. I mean, color crayons are pretty important because you get you have to color your world. You know, it can't just like be... you color my world. <laughs> so, um, and if crayons break, they're easy to sharpen, or you know, you can you could melt them if you wanted to That's do right. something creative with I them. Thought. Exercise your so, whimsy, Bonnie. The crayons yeah. are in, uh, invincible; like they're infinite crayons. They never go dull. Or right. you could and, use them for wax, right? If you could like figure out how to make candles and my paper too it's like a little stack but it always somehow replenishes so yeah that's what i would have there we go i like that alan so this is gonna sound uh unoriginal because my number one thing is telescope but i would bring a newtonian telescope there's this guy in uh, australia who has been uh writing down and discovering um supernovas as they explode because you can see a supernova go off and you can see it for a short amount of time and then it's gone. And there's these explosions happening all over our galaxy. And they've computerized telescopes to pick them up whenever the supernovae go off. But this guy still beat all of the computerized telescopes with his like own, like on the ground, just him, just a notebook, writing them down. So I think it'd be fun to look for explosions in the galaxy, you know, while you're waiting. So telescope would definitely be number one. Um, secondly, I put journal, which Bonnie just said, and I think I would just get the biggest journal I could possibly get. I don't need crayons. Unfortunately, my world's black and white. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I think that for me and just my spirituality, journaling is just kind of the most important thing. Um, as an Enneagram too, I give a lot. And so journaling is really the only time I'm listening to myself and, and writing things down. And um, I'd kind of want to still do that, even if I was alone, because you'll always have someone to talk to, right? If you can learn to talk to yourself. And yep. thirdly, I would have a shovel just because I'd like to build stuff. Like I think a shovel is probably the most important thing for me. I don't know build retaining walls. I was in construction for a while when I was younger. And I think I would just love to terraform a, an area of the island, probably build some weird stuff. <laughs> Dig a tunnel. I want to visit that island. Dig that one. a tunnel. Hey, that's, <laughs> and then drown myself on accident because it's below the water. <laughs> below the water. No, I would build big monolithic structures and stuff, you know? So if anybody ever got to me, they'd be a little weirded out. Uh, with your shovel yeah with a shovel that's all you really need you could just fashion a shovel from a tree you got everything you need on the island (laughs) on a deserted island digging is kind of pointless alan you'd want to build everything above the sand it that's not i'm imagining a mountainous island i'm not imagining uh, oh god do any of you watch survivor i watch survivor like for one season i'm a super fan of survivor so i feel like I watched Gilligan's this, Island, dude. That was my jam right there. That's my survivor. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. 
How about you, Jeff? Uh, first thing, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, mine are bundles, so I'm just gonna say that up front. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fully embrace the whimsy of this particular scenario, and so, uh, che- che- AKA cheating. That's right. Right. Uh, well, at least it's better than boring. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs> uh, first thing is uh, an iPhone. Not so I can call because I recognize that I don't have service or anything like that. But I would like to make film. And I'm thinking the best device to do like film and editing is the iPhone that you have right there. So I could just watch my own movies. <laughs> For yourself. <laughs> practice my practice my composition. Play different characters. Like engage in some sort of. So that's. I could totally see you doing this actually. Dude, you do not need to be on a deserted island to do <laughs> Yeah. That. So uh, yeah, next week. Uh <laughs> no. Uh the second thing would be uh, uh, uh like I'm I'm going with the castaway scenario so I got on that island because I was in a, a FedEx plane and uh there are several boxes of uh I like I like precise sharp colored pencils and coloring books. I've been doing a lot of coloring with my daughters lately uh after Christmas cuz we all got coloring books and our own coloring things so I've been having fun doing that. So I would do some coloring just to relax and then I would get one of those little kid sandcastle sets. And really engage in building sandcastles with like those little cool buckets and shovels and, and just, uh, those are my three bundle items that I would, that I would, that would be available to me because I crashed on a FedEx plane. Very cool. Those are pretty cool. I would totally want to be on that island. They're, you were they're right. all pretty yeah. cool. I, I didn't even think of sandcastles. That's awesome. Right? Like, yeah, that's a good When one. do you get a chance to do sandcastles? And I figure you, now you have all the time in the world. And I could build sets for my films within the sandcastles, right? <laughs> Make my version of the Lego movie by doing little stock motion with the in the castles. And now I'm like, I want to go on a desert island. Uh, <laughs> and, and and this, this uh, self-care, iPhone. Self-care, Jeff. It's self-care. It's a magic iPhone that never runs out of battery. That's right. Well, I'll be, I'll be more practical. In the plane was an unlimited thing of like charging bricks that I could keep the iPhone charged. So what's the difference? There you go. I know. What's the difference? An unlimited supply of charging bricks. <laughs> Still need to keep within the narrative of the world, you know. Man, that's a dream right there. Just endless time to experience creative endeavors That's the dream. now yeah to like have yeah. the endless time just be creative and do Where the things you really want to do now yeah. I'm, now i'm getting sad because that's not life so let's uh end this can, conversation you, no you can definitely set that up right now go to a um, monastery or something for like two days and just be with yourself yeah and not get paid and you know not <laughs> take care of stuff that needs to get done and yeah that'd be perfect just abandon life i mean i wish i could but not that sounds bad that's it. That'll do it for us this week. <laughs> Alan, how can people find what you have going on on the interwebs? Uh, just Facebook. And that's Rev Alan O'Brien backslash Rev Alan O'Brien. Bonnie? Uh, Bonnie Langrambob on Facebook. And I'm also at Parkside Community Church in Sacramento. And Casey? Casey Tinnon on Facebook. Uh, the Queerly Faithful Pastor is my blog and also my Twitter handle. And uh, LumisUCC.org. And Raj. On Twitter, at Raj Rambob, and Facebook, slash Rev Raj Rambob. And you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi and listen on the second and fourth Thursday of every month. 
soon. <laughs> We're still on hiatus, but my other Divine Cinema podcast at divinecinema.net. As for Irenacast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts. We just got on Radio Public for those of you that are into that. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. Uh, and you can uh, fill out our listener survey at irenacast.com slash survey. Uh, the information you give us is super helpful as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's irenacast.com slash survey. <sighs> so for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. And this is Raj. Thanks for joining the conversation. <laughs>